Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of the Might Sports Roundup here on WSJU Radio. I'm Mike Ozabo. Um, so Valentine's weekend is all over with. Uh, just past that yesterday. I'm sure everybody had their healthy dose of chocolate while watching uh, plenty of college basketball this weekend. Um, whether it was with your significant other or not, um, you know, maybe single people are just sitting, you know, with a healthy dose, hopefully a healthy uh, amount of chocolate watching on some of our co- college basketball action that was going on this weekend. Plenty more to come, of course, but, um, you know, plenty to talk about, you know, not just college basketball, but plenty to talk about in the sports world on today's edition. But we f- before we get to that, make sure... Um, to follow my Twitter page at, at underscore M Sports Roundup. And also you can follow my personal handle on Twitter at Michael underscore A Zabo to get all the updates about the show as well as um, on Instagram. Same way, Michael underscore Zabo to get all the updates about the show. And when it is posted to our podcast plat- platforms on Spotify and Anchor. So, of course, to start out um, today's show, we're going to start off local. Uh, with St. John's right here on the campus of uh, St. John's University. We're going to start off talking about them as St. John's uh, uh, Athletics is going to be pretty active in the next uh, two days. And today they got the St. John's men's soccer team opening up their season against St. Joseph's. game was originally supposed to be played on uh, this Saturday, but because of COVID testing protocols or whatnot, maybe the, the test didn't come in um at the appropriate time on Saturday to get the game going then. They pushed the game back two days, and um, that result is about to go final. About a minute 41 left in the game. St. John's up one to nothing thanks to a Tani Oluwashei goal. Of course, Oluwashei is the reigning and um, preseason Big East Offensive Player of the Year, had an 11-goal output last season back in 2019 after, of course, as we all know, the fall season the fall college sports season was pushed back, except for football, of course, but mainly for everything else was pushed back to the spring due to the coronavirus. So St. John's playing their first competitive game since December of 2019. Um, so Olashe gets his account opened, uh, opens his account for this season after, like I just mentioned, had that 11-goal output in 2019. So uh, St. John's uh, c- came into the season um, in 2019 on a 14-5-1 record where they lost in the third round of the NCAA tournament to Virginia, who wind up to be the national runners-up to Georgetown, who won it all in 2019. So St. John's looking to once again contend for a national title, and that starts today as they're looking to finish out this minute and 24 and get their first win of the season right in the uh, season opener. Last season, of course, they set a school record by winning their, their first uh, seven straight uh, games. Um, that was the best start um, to a season in St. John's men's program history. Um, so looking to, I guess, get off uh, on onto that um, the right foot to try and, I guess, match that streak, although we'll be a long way away from it. Um, but mainly with this game, just to quickly recap this game pretty much so far, under a minute uh, left to go. Um, it's really been a sloppy game, you know, a bit back and forth. St. John's has dominated a bit of the play. St. Joseph's had a couple of good chances on the counterattack, um, especially in the first half. Um, Jan Hoffner having to make an incredible save 
uh, Muka Gavin making a good save as well in this second half. But really sloppy game in the middle of the field from both teams. Um, you know, a, a bit uh, some passes that are a bit waywards or whatnot, um, not hitting their target or just all over the place. A couple players who, you know, their touch is not as crisp as you would like it to be. But that's what you would expect in game one of a season and also when a, and a team hasn't played a competitive game in over 400 days, you're going to get a little bit of sloppiness like that. But, um, you know, also coupled with the fact due to COVID you're not having exhibition games, so you're not ironing, ironing out those creases early on. So they ironed them out here. So that's what great teams do. They were able to get uh, a really great win there as that game just went final. St. John's notching its first win of the season. One to nothing over the St. Joseph's Hawks. Um, they'll next um, take on uh, NJIT on Saturday once again in Belson Stadium. So we'll follow them as they try and march toward a national championship once again as they were picked number 24 in the preseason by uh, Top Drawer Soccer and number 16 in the College Soccer News Poll. So they'll once again try and get up uh, into the uh, into a deep run in the NCAA tournament come you know mid-April late April uh, time. Um, so moving over to another St. John's team that we are all concerned about is the St. John's men's basketball team, and a how do you how do I put this a rough loss last week against Butler on the road. I said that last week on this show, that they really couldn't lose that game. Like, losing that game would make for a decrease in the margin of error that you could have the rest of the season. And, of course, Hinkle Fieldhouse has been a house of horrors for St. John's in the last couple of years. They have not beaten Butler on the road since 2014. Um, so, and that streak continued. And St. John's really looked like they were going to break that streak. They got off to a really good start. They were um, they were up 16 in the first half, but as we know with St. John's and you know their frisky relationship with big leads over the last couple of years, um, but especially during this recent run in the last month that they've had, um, where you know we've ignored the fact that um, you know they've given up big leads because they've continued to win, but on Marquette on against Marquette on the road. On January 31st, they blew a first half, uh, fi a 15-point first half lead, but still wound up winning the winning the game by two. Against Providence, they blew a 17-point first half lead. They still won the game by 11. So you didn't mind as much about them blowing the big leads because they were still able to weather the storm and get the win. But they weren't able to do that against Butler. So giving up huge leads is. It definitely was on Mike Anderson's mind in this week off that St. John's had. And something he'll want to correct going into tomorrow's game against Xavier at Carneseca Arena. So, I mean, that was a bad loss against Butler. Um, you know, you definitely want to win those games if you want to make the NCAA tournament. But that doesn't mean they won't. Losing that, losing that game didn't determine whether they were going to make it in or not. Um, it just would have been a really good road win on your um, resume that you really could have used. Um, but just to reel off some quick stats from that game, Julian Champagny once again with 19 points, the ever-consistent presence there, has scored in double figures in every single game of the season. 
Uh, Rasheem Dunn had 12. Had a big, big uh, jump shot, uh, fadeaway jump shot to tie the game. But, of course, as we all know, the game went to overtime. And St. John's lost by a score of 76 to 73. So that score, that, um, you know, shot, I guess, gets a little moot. Although, in that moment, it was, a, it was an unbelievable shot that they really needed at the time. Isaiah Moore also had 13 as well. He was um, big for St. John's, especially in the first half. Uh, had a couple of big dunks, but it's the same thing for Josh Roberts and Isaiah Moore. Foul trouble is sometimes the problem, and that forced Moore to the bench at times, especially in critical in a critical time period in the second half where they really could have used them down the stretch, and you had to deal with that issue of um, you know foul trouble, but. St. John's were ahead for most of this game, and the frustrating thing about this for for St. John's fans is that they were up for most of the game, and then much like the, the Xavier game on January 6th, Butler just went on a run later in the second half, and you know St. John's stayed with them, but ultimately the momentum had shifted, and Butler winds up coming away with an important win for them. Um, but... You know, St. John's, I mean, there was no excuse to not win that game. You know, even through all the adversity, even through Butler cutting down their deficit and getting through, you know, coming back from that 16-point deficit, closing the gap, making it a tight game for most of the final 10 minutes, um, St. John's were still up by two with 14.8 seconds left. Dylan Wasu, your freshman, he had seven points in the game made an incredible play, drove to the basket on a tough layup to put you up by two with less than 30 seconds to go. An incredible play by a freshman, no less. And then you get the stop at the other end on Butler. So all you have to do at that point is inbound the ball, and Butler's going to get you into a fouling game. You make your free throws, the game is over, and you you break the, the curse at Hinkle, and you walk out of there with a great road win. But what happens? The ball is turned over. Butler takes a timeout. Thompson gets uh, the ball and, and gets, a t- uh, gets it to be a tie game. We go to overtime, and then St. John's, of course, the momentum has shifted by then. You lose by three. It should have never gotten to that point. St. John's still had a timeout that they could have burned where they realized, oh, the inbounds options aren't great. Let's just take a t- another timeout, get everything together, you know, make you know, draw up a better play so that, you know, we make sure that we can just get this right, get the ball inbounds, and, you know, shoot a couple free throws, and we walk our way to a uh, a big road win and breaking that big curse of Hinkle, of course. But the other thing is, you know, on that inbounds play, first off, you shouldn't be bounce passing it right on the baseline. I don't, it doesn't... It doesn't matter if it was done or whoever it was or whatnot. You shouldn't really be, um, you know, it was just bad at execution there to uh, have a bounce pass along the baseline. You know, that just put uh, that just puts your teammate in a in a world of trouble and, and quite a pickle there. And as we saw, that he turned it over. Um, but the other thing was that the the final play with um, with Butler, Butler goes to a timeout. You know, it's going to go to Aaron Thompson, their best scorer who had the hot hand, he he was doing really well in that second half. He wound up having 17 points, but most importantly, 10 assists. He was a- having a fabulous game for Butler, especially in that second half. You know it's going to go to him. 
problem was they put they put Posh on Thompson, and they shouldn't have done that. I, I mean, Posh. Granted, the referees gave a couple of scant calls that I certainly wasn't pleased about watching it from home. Um, you know, and I think they got a couple, maybe at least two fouls on Posh that really didn't deserve to be fouls and could have even gone the other way. I think there were a couple push-offs they called a blocking foul that um, got Posh his fourth foul with, I believe, three minutes left to go. And I think that uh, that one wasn't a foul. But him having at four fouls was a huge disadvantage, I think. Um, you know, and he was guarding Thompson at that point. So you know for Posh, yes, he's a great on-ball defender, but you're limited what you can do when you're when you have four fouls and you don't want to foul Thompson because uh, Butler's in the bonus and they you don't want to put him at the free throw line you know they should I think Greg Williams Jr. should have been in there should have um, been the one to be on Thompson they you know um, I think they were I think um, Champagne and Posh were also trying to get Thompson into a double team while also trying to guard against just in case he went into um, if he made a pass inside, if you want a nitpick, you could have said they could have been a little tighter on the double team, but that's just if you want a nitpick. The big thing is I think uh, Greg Williams Jr. should have been in on that play. If, it's one thing if you would have trusted Posh to keep on playing and everything, but it was literally down to that one play. I, I think, you know, Williams Jr. is just is fine on defense. I think he, you know, would have done fine on Thompson in that last, you know, that last-ditch play there. Because you would have got to stop there. Obviously, game's over. You win by two. Um, but so that was my gripes. I think that was a, a bad um, loss. But I um, you know, now with the week, they had the week off. They play tomorrow night. Um, you know, you just got to get back to it, shake it off, and they they need to win this game. If I was saying that, you know, they need uh, they needed to not lose um, last week game, they really this. Nets game tomorrow night against Xavier and Karnasek Arena is a must, must win for St. John's. They, they really cannot lose that game. It's gonna really put put you on a tremendous amount of pressure um, to basically win out the rest of the way to get into the tournament. Because uh, you know they have an advantage, St. John's. Your schedule, you have four uh, out of the final five games as of right now. Um, at home, you know, or for the Nets five, something like that. You have all at home, but you know it's not gonna uh, it's not gonna be easy. You're still going to be playing Seton Hall, who's tough to match up with size wise. Um, you know, Providence. Who knows? Pro- you know, Ed Cooley always has them on a patented tear toward the end of the season. But you're thinking you can win that. But you know, if you just projecting the situation. If you lose to Xavier, I mean, you obviously can't lose to DePaul. Then you're gonna have Villanova on the road, which uh, I mean, to be a betting man, I wouldn't bet you win that. Uh, I'm sure Villanova are not too happy uh, after what St. John's did to them um, on February 3rd. Um, and then you have, um, you may have to, you might make up the UConn game at home at some point, and having book night back for UConn is. That's that's tough. It's a tough matchup to try and win, because um, UConn can certainly win just as well without him and be an NCAA tournament team as well without him. But with Booknight, they it just adds another weapon. Um, 
than Seton Hall. Like I said, it's tough to match up size-wise. So, I mean, if you lose to Xavier, you're you're essentially putting yourself into the situation where, especially the games at home, you really cannot mess up with, and, and that's going to be tough um, to pull off. So you have to win to tomorrow's game, and that is, I believe, a, a it's on the cusp of a quad one. I believe for Xavier that would be a high quad two win if uh, St. John's beats them tomorrow night. But, um, you know, it, it's a win that they need. And especially, then you look at the other side of it, the Big East standings, St. John's wins and uh, Providence beats UConn. St. John's are in fourth place in the Big East standings. You know, they spent a bit of time in uh, Chris Mullins last year where they were in third place in the Big East standings um, for a very short time toward the end of the season. But, um, you know, to be as high as fourth, St. John's haven't done that as much. They haven't done that a whole lot in in the the uh, 21st century, let alone you know in the last couple of years. They they really haven't been that high. So that would be huge um, on that end as well for them to win tomorrow night. And to do that, you have to do you have to have a similar performance and game plan than you did in the la- as you did in the last matchup on January 6th in the Cintas Center. Um, where St. John's did lose 69-61 in that game, but you know they they were able to hold Fremantle and Scruggs down for most of the game, um, you know, and be able to limit what they were able to do on the offensive end, and, and you know it was just losing that game was just like what I was saying before they wound up, um, they wind up throwing away the game late. Um, Xavier go uh, St. John's was pretty much up the entire game. It was close, but they were pretty much up by I think six was the biggest lead. But for most of the time, they were up by four throughout the game. Um, I think for pretty much for 35 minutes, and then Xavier goes on a big run, and um, you know the game slips away. That would have been a, a big win to have there. But you know you got to have a similar kind of performance. If you're St. John's in terms of on the defensive end dealing with Fremantle and Scruggs, if you're going to be able to win tomorrow night. The big reason of why St. John's lost that game on the 6th a month ago was, you know, Colby Jones going off for 16. He was a guy who, coming into that game, averaged three points a game. So you, you definitely can't have that happen, you know, have other people other than Scruggs and Fremantle beat you. You know, Fremantle only had five points that game. Scruggs came on a little bit more toward the end and had 10 points. But, you know, you can't be having 16 points from, you know, a source that you you wouldn't expect to to beat you. That's what really beat St. John's in that game. So you got to do a similar job on Fremantle and Scruggs, which is going to be tough because, you know, it's not – it's sometimes easier said than done because Fremantle – just went off for 26 against um, Xavier in the last game. I'm sorry, not uh, against uh, against UConn, excuse me. Plays on Xavier. It's against UConn, but he went off for 26 points in their last game. So, you know, I get it. It's, it's easier said than done, but that's what St. John's is going to have to do if they're going to get a big win tomorrow night. As always, you're always looking for um, production. Uh, you always want the production from Julian Champagny. And uh, Posh Alexander. Um, but I'm looking to get other guys involved. We've seen Isaiah Moore at times. Um, we've seen Vince Cole at, uh, at times as well. Isaiah Moore has, has 
produced pretty well in the last couple of weeks. You need something from him, and I think you need you need Vince Cole. Vince Cole has had an up-and-down season where some games he'll have a 15- to 20-point performance. Other games he'll have just a 5-point or, or nothing on the board at all. Um, so he typically plays better at Karnaseka Arena, and I think he can be an X-factor because, you know, Xavier can get into quite a bit of, of a shooting team as well. You know, they have some good three-point shooters on the team. Um, Adam Kunkel leading the uh, leading the way in that department. And Cole can, can shoot it just as well. And, you know, I think his presence, if he can be able to get, um, you know, if he can be able to get his outside game going, that's going to be a, a, a good X factor um, for St. John's. But they need an absolutely huge... They need this win, St. John's. You need to go 2-0 and this week against Xavier and DePaul if you're going to still stay firmly in the NCAA tournament picture. Um, but we'll see what happens tomorrow night. Um, tomorrow night at um, 8.30 at Karnasek Arena, we'll see what will happen as St. John's will try and break a 12-game losing streak against Xavier. Not not at home, not on the road. They haven't beaten Xavier in almost six years of action. Um, so, I, I mean, talk about that you need this win for the NCAA, uh, for your NCAA tournament resume, but also the fact that at the same time, just as much as you need it, you you know, history isn't on your side. You, so, you know, that would be big on that end. As well, if you can get that for your res resume, get a win, and you know, breaking that unbelievably ridiculous streak of not beating an opponent for almost six years, but you know, a big game for St. John's tomorrow night. Um, you know, it's the biggest game of the season thus far. You know, you could argue about the other games later on, but thus far, right now. Uh, and how St. John's has been playing and where they are in the tournament picture. It is the biggest game of the season. Um, you know, they, they need, they can't stay, you can't say it enough. They they need that, um, they, they need this win against Xavier. If they don't, like I said, you know, it's, it's going to be an even more tougher road to be able to try and make the tournament. It's going to be a much um, more tougher road. Uh, to try and get there. So we'll see what will happen um, tomorrow night as St. John's will take on Xavier, trying to move to 14-8 and eight on the season and 8-7 and seven in conference play as they'll try and do that and notch a big win. We'll see what will happen um, tomorrow night as we'll move on um, a little bit back to soccer now. And um, you know, a couple of things in soccer I want to touch on. I'm going to talk about the Premier League over in England and some action that um, was going on this weekend, but want to start off here at home in the MLS as a couple of days ago, close to a, a week uh, a week ago, I believe last Wednesday or Thursday, um, MLS um, and the Players Association um, did agree to, or the union I should say, did agree to a new CBA, so they've been negotiating the new CBA for the last couple of weeks, finally came to an agreement. Um, once again, they also had some CBA negotiations last May and June for the shortened 2020 season. Um, so this is now the third um, CBA negotiation that they've had in the last 12 months. So a lot of ironing out they've had to do on uh, on the uh, the salary terms front. 
But, you know, for um, this CBA deal that was enacted, just the quick hits on it, um, you know, it's the current CBA, pretty much similar terms, just extended for two more years up until the end of the 2027 season. Um, if they hadn't touched the CBA, it would go um, through till 2025. Um, but they definitely needed to get this done. It is a much better look for the league that you have this done through till 2027. That takes us through the 2026 World Cup, which of course is hosted by the trio of U.S. Uh, of the USA, Mexico, and Canada. Um, so it's a it's a really good look for the league that they're able to get that done. In terms of the specific terms of the deal, who won, who didn't, you could say the owners won more. Um, since the players didn't have a lot of leverage in this negotiation, you know, the, some perks for the players is that in the 2025-26 season, salary or the minimum salary will increase 7.5%, and in um, and then it will increase in 10 by 10% in 2026 and 2027, the final year of that CBA deal. And while those salaries will increase, that's nice for the players. You know, you wonder maybe if, you know, project four years from now in 2025, maybe the players could have gotten more um, than those numbers on, on the salary increases if they were negotiating this four years from now. But like I said, I think it's a good look for them to have terms set through um, the 2026 World Cup when they are going to be hosting it um, here. But for the players, I mean, you needed this deal done, you... you, you you know, the MLS is not like other leagues in that, you know, a lot of players are paid at or close to the minimum. They're not exorbitant wages, uh, you know, a couple million here and there. Um, but, you know, you can't go with in their situation. You can't go for too long of a period of time without a check coming in. So, you know, it was imperative on their end to get a deal. And it's not a horrible one, but, you know. They had to take what they could get um, from the ownership, who, of course, had a little more leverage in this deal. But like I said, good deal for them to get done and have some um, clarity on the MLS uh, labor terms through till when the U.S. will host the World Cup in 2026. Um, but moving over now to the Premier League. Premier League action this weekend. We start off at the top, toward the top of the table, and Manchester United drawing... Uh, tying one to one with West Bromwich Albion on the road, um, a tough loss, that uh, a tough tie there for uh, Man United, who's chasing uh, Manchester City in the title race. But um, Man Manchester City, of course, on Saturday notched a three nothing uh, win against uh, Tottenham Hotspur. Um, so Gu uh, Pep Guardiola getting the best of Jose Mourinho in that classic Guardiola versus Mourinho matchup that we've seen a ton of over the years. Um, but Guardiola getting a big win um, for his city against Tottenham. And now, because um, United dropped points once again, um, the gap is now eight points between them in second place and Manchester City in first. With a game in hand, Manchester City, of course, will make up that game in hand against Everton this week. So that lead at the top of the table could potentially grow to um, 11 points 
um, nine at the, the, the very least, or it stays the same. Um, but the way Manchester City is playing, uh, who knows when they're going to lose again. Um, they're absolutely playing on fire. Um, they're playing their ruthless attacking football that we've known um, for them to be in the last couple of years, and especially under Pep. They, they're just absolutely flying right now. They're in a, in a hot streak. There's no way else to to say it. Their defense, everybody who would want to criticize them said before, you know, maybe a month ago in early January where they were still middling in the uh, mid-table or just outside the top four, um, you know, they weren't playing good, this or that. Not that they weren't playing good. They weren't get their, getting their offense to go. Their defense has been rock solid all year, has been, I believe, at the very top or or – um, you know, near the top in the in the uh, standings for uh, in how good their defense is. Um, you know, they've been really good on, on the defensive end this season, and namely thanks to the signing of Ruben Diaz from Benfica. He's been absolutely phenomenal in the back there for them, and it's been a rock solid defense for Manchester City. What has been what held them back up until now was their offense. They weren't scoring goals as much as they used to. They weren't, you know, freely scoring as they used to. Now they are. And you see more of those 3 nothing, 4 nothing wins that they used to, you know, you used to see uh, a lot of even just a year ago. Um, so, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, manager for Manchester United, said after the disappointing tie that not going to let Man City run away with it, but you know, as of right now, if they get to 11 points, uh, you know, if they win their game in hand this week, they get to 11 points, it's pretty much starting to run away with it. I mean, you would need that team to lose or drop points in four matches straight. I don't think it's going to happen with Manchester City. The way they're playing right now, um, absolutely an incredible form of football. Um, but I get for Manchester United fans, I get in that game... Um, with West Brom, there were some bad calls. The goal, the goal for West Brom, they originally were ahead in the game. Um, I get that, you know, uh, the attacker had his hands over um, center back Victor Lindelof's eyes, and you know he couldn't, you can't do much about that. So I get that. That may should have been called a foul. You could say he should have been in a um, better defensive position to prevent that from happening. Um, there were a couple of instances where, you know, right at the stroke of halftime, just after they equalized in the game through Bruno Fernandez, um, United were just got the ball back from West Brom the, on a giveaway, and they were going to burst forward on a three-on-one situation. Now you're looking on that, you're starting in your own half, sure, but you got a three-on-one situation up ahead. You know you're likely going to score a goal there and take the uh, take you know hit two quick goals and take the halftime lead, and the referee referee instead blows the whistle dead, which um, was a killer I think. You know in that situation, as a referee, if you see a, an attacking situation developing, you're supposed to let that go. You know that's the unwritten rule of the game. You can't be letting you know blowing it for halftime or full time. Um, you know, right in the midst of an attacking sequence. So that was a big letdown there. But, you know, you could point to a couple calls. And, of course, then you could point to, you know, if Harry Maguire had gotten in that last-ditch header, um, 
you know, right in the 90th minute of the game, of course, it's all a different story. But, you know, the biggest point is that, you know, you shouldn't be having a 1-1 game, you know, against West Brom on the road. I get they can play you tough. They're going to sit in. They're going to sit deep. They're going to de defend with everybody back, and it's going to be a tough, scrappy game. But, you know, if you want to win the, the, the Premier League title, you got to those are games you got to win. You got to win to keep pace or to, you know to keep ahead. And they just failed to do so and they failed to have that edge about them Man United. They failed to have that edge to get the big wins when they need to do so. They get you know a consistent you know they get some you know they get a hot stretch here, a hot stretch there, a cold stretch there, cold stretch, you know, here. It's just it's nothing ever consistent for them to mount a serious title challenge. And, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer says he doesn't want to concede, but, you know, the the math doesn't lie. Um, you know, and by the way, just to go off on that, um, Liverpool also lost this week, and I'll get to that. But, um, you know, I, I never like it when, you know, Jurgen Klopp said after his um, his team lost 3-1 to Leicester City this weekend, um, you know, that, he he got emotional and said, you know, we're basically conceding the uh, the title. The title's conceded. We're not going to get it this year. Uh, I never really like. It, it always rubs me the wrong way. Um, no matter who you are, it always rubs me the wrong way as a coach for you to say that. Um, even if you know, I know players aren't stupid. They they'll look at they'll pull up their phone and look at the table and can see the math. But you know, I just don't agree with uh, coaches doing that. Um, publicly, it's one thing you want to say privately, like, hey, guys, you know, maybe we're, you know, as a big team like Liverpool or Man United, we're going to go, you know, maybe a little more harder in the cup competitions or the Champions League or whatnot, um, you know, because we kind of know it's a long shot from here on out in the Premier League. But, you know, it's one thing if you want to say that privately, although maybe even still I'd have a little problems talking like that. But, you know, Say, I think that stuff should, uh, you know, that kind of talk should stay within a team. You shouldn't be saying that to the public. You know, what are you going to do? You still have, four, you know, 14 games, uh, 18 games or so left in the season. You know, you're not, not just going to throw up your hands and just give it all up. You know, you still have games to play. You still have, you know, Champions League places to compete for and getting into the top four and stuff like that. So I, I, I just get rubbed the wrong way um, when coaches do that and they're like, it, it almost is like, oh no, who cares at what point or we're not playing for anything. You're still playing for something. You know, you don't want to give that kind of morale like, oh, we've given up, we're, we're downtrodden, you know, things are just not going well. You want to stay, you want to stay positive. And, you know, there's ways to say, oh, we've got to do better or this and that or, you know, this is looking like a long shot or whatnot. But to me, just saying, just saying that, like, oh, we're conceding it. That that's not. I, I never agree with that. You don't concede until the last game or whenever um, a team mathematically clinches. You could say, you know, you could say privately that you do, or you could listen to all the commentators say that, oh, it's gone for them or whatnot. But if you're a coach, to me, you're on the television screen. You have a mic um, in your face. You. you um, you're having somebody interview you. I don't think those words should ever be said. You always want to keep on. You always want to keep on going, and you don't want to convey that kind of image to the media. But um, that's that. Just a little bit more on United. 
I think I, I said this um, wa- watching this with my brother this week in this game. Um, you know, United seemed like the old Arsenal teams in the early 2010s under Arsene Wenger, where they had Cesc Cesc Fabregas, um, you know, being the main star of the team, you know, running the show almost like in a Bruno Fernandes-esque role and, you know, the kind of impact he would have at some point. Um, Yeah, I had Robin Van Persie there, the main striker who was very talented, would score a lot as well. You'd have good pieces around the team, but the problem was with those teams and what stopped them from mounting serious title challenges was defensive lapses, getting silly results like that 1-1 game against West Brom. Having those 3-4 game slumps where they draw like two and lose two or, or draw three and win one, you know, you have those kind of, you know, slumps there that against teams that you really shouldn't be slumping against not really prevented them from mounting any sort of serious title challenge during those years and just settling for fourth place, settling for that top four place to get into ne- that next season's Champions League. So I, I think under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Man United are just going to be like those Arsenal teams. I, you know, I think the sooner the the board at Man United realize that and and realize that a better coach is needed, um, the better for Manchester United. There are good pieces on this team. Bruno Fernandes, the incredible impact that he's made in the last year or so for um, United is undeniable. Who knows where they would be without him? You have Marcus Rashford. You have Anthony Martial, who can score in bunches between them. You have Mason Greenwood, a young prospect coming up on the wing um, that really showed flashes of incredible potential last, at the tail end of last season. Um but, you know, they're just not able to cons- put a consistent run of results together at the right time in the year for you to mount a title challenge. And it's it's disappointing. And it's fr- for fans, it's it's frustrating. And I think that's what they're going to be under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer unless they get a better coach. What I mean by a better coach, I offer you an alternative in RB Leipzig's Julian Nagelsmann. Um, you know, I, he, there's a co- when there's a coach like that out there, and rumblings are going on in Germany that he's telling people he wants to leave in the summer and whatnot. You jump on that. He's a he's a generational kind of coach as as coaches go. You know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic is playing in the Serie A right now. He Nagelsmann is just uh, is just younger than Ibrahimovic is, and he's uh, a coach at such a high level team uh, like Leipzig in the Bundesliga. Um, he is one of the best up-and-coming young coaches um, in the game in the game of soccer. Um, you know, you have to pounce on someone like that if he's available. Solskjaer, to me, is not a long-term answer for Manchester United. I think they got to jump on Nagelsmann if he is out there. Um, we'll see what happens in the next couple uh, weeks with United if they can start ripping off some results to try and, you know. And gain some ground back on Man City, um, but mentioned the Leicester Liverpool game um, this past weekend as well. Leicester beating the defending champions um, three to one, um, and then as I just said, uh, Jurgen Klopp in the post-game press conference, conce- basically conceding the title, um, saying that yeah, we're not getting it this season. Our title defense is going to fail, and for Liverpool at the same time, you feel a little bad. 
They've had to deal with a lot of injuries. They basically have not been playing with their two starting center backs for nearly the entire season. They've had some injuries um, on the attacking front in uh, Diego Hota, who was doing absolutely amazing ever since he got signed. Um, so they've lost that spark plug for them. They've generally been, you know, stagnant. You know they, that they could hit another gear, Liverpool. Um, they were in first for a time in um, early December or right up there. And, um, you, you know, they were, it started to seem like they were going to start purring a little more. The machine was going to start rolling even more. Um, but uh, especially after that 7 uh, nothing Crystal Palace win just before Christmas. Um, but they, they wind up, you know, faltering. Um, they went in January. They went, I believe, four or five games without scoring a Premier League goal, which was absolutely shocking for a team who has the kind of offense. And Roberto Firmino, uh, Mohamed Salah, and Sadio Mane, who's, who, who Salah still is right up there, despite, his, uh, despite the slump that Liverpool has had, um, is still right up there in the uh, uh, Golden Boot race. Um, so I think for Liverpool, they've just been they've been hit by injuries, but they've had some bad form. It's a stat. It's starting to show signs of a team that needs a bit of of refreshment. You have a, a ton of guys on the team, um, especially the ones who are active right now, and Salah and Mane and Firmino, that are all edging toward that dreaded age 30 plateau in the game of soccer it's like with teams once you get to that age 30 plateau everybody gets you know queasy and starts saying eh, there's more of a clock on you on when you need to be replaced or whatnot um you know so they're headed toward that age and and they've been together for a while liverpool that that squad might just need a little bit of a of a steroid shot a little bit of refreshment in the summertime um so um, you know, they're just probably going to be looking for a top four spot. Or if you can, focus on the cup competitions and try and win the Champions League. They do have the talent capable, even without their starting center backs. I don't think they will, but you never know. They could go on, on a run. And you honestly don't know the other thing. We're going to get into the, the Champions League in a little bit. The other thing is that, um, you know, you might have... You might have um, a situation where if anybody's monitoring uh, the coronavirus situation in Europe where, you know, things are, are getting bad. Um, they've had to res uh, they've had to move some Champions League games um, to other countries. Um, Romania, I believe, is hosting a couple of matches. Um, um, uh, Budapest, Hungary and the Puskas Arena is also going to host some games as well in the Champions League that they wouldn't originally have done so, of course. Um, but those are all rescheduled because of Corona. Uh, those are all shifted to different venues because of coronavirus restri restrictions in Spain and Germany and whatnot from English teams coming in um, because of the variants, uh, COVID variants that are going on there and the situation that's going on over there. So you could have a situation where the Champions League, much like it was last summer when they were finishing it up, put into a March Madness style, uh, a bubble style, uh, toward the end of the season. And, you know, if you could be a team, maybe whether they're expected to win or not, could go on a run and, you know, you're in a winner-go-home situation, could go on a hot streak and, you know, ride their way toward 
uh, a Champions League title or whatnot. Um, so there's that element as well that who knows that maybe that's where Liverpool are dark horses in. You know, they're definitely going to turn their attention and their focus a little more now toward um, the Champions League. And they'll just, you know, try and maintain themselves of where they are right now in fourth place in the Premier League. You know, make sure you stay around there and really go for it in the Champions League from here on out. But we'll see how the Premier League action shakes up as um, we go along. I know Chelsea is playing um, today as well against Newcastle. They just took a 2-0 lead in that game. But um, more Premier League action as we keep on going, um, you know, in the season. Um, we'll have some more talk about the Premier League um, next week. Um, but uh, moving over toward um, the Champions League, just one note before I get to my Champions League predictions um, for the knockout round that will start today. Um, Bayern Munich beat um, Tigris um, uh, one to nothing in the Club World Cup final. Tigris, of course, hailing from Mexico, um, beat um, Bayern beat them one nothing in the Club World Cup final. Um, thanks to a goal through defender Benjamin Pavard. Um, so Bayern Munich becomes the only the second ever team to win six trophies in a season. Basically, you know, if you go the distance, uh, basically if you're involved in the Champions League, um, you know, you have six competitions each season that you're available to. And winning all six is not something we've seen often. And Bayern, Bayern Munich joins... Um, the 2009 Barcelona team as the only ones to do so. Um, of course, Pep Guardiola coached that uh, team in which he had an incredible stretch of play with Barcelona between 2008 uh, to um, 2011 or so. Um, bef uh, 2012, I would say, before he left, took a year off and then went to Bayern Munich. Um, so those two teams, the only two teams ever in, in uh, soccer history to win six trophies in a year. Of course, everybody wants to, uh, I believe uh, Bleacher Report um, you know, tr tried to throw out a hypothetical situation of, you know, take those two teams, you know, who would win in a hypothetical matchup or whatnot. But, um, you know, impressive feat for Bayern Munich, who have been absolutely dominant in the past year or so. Haven't lost that much. You know, it all seemed like they were in early... Um, in the early season in 2019, way back when, um, you know, they were starting, they were struggling, um, y you know, they were, they were struggling, um, you know, they were not playing well, a lot of conversation was being talked about the veterans and falling off a cliff and, and whatnot on the team, and, um, things just turned around, they changed the coach, they, they made Hansi Flick the assistant, the, the uh, head coach, and, like night and day, they absolutely transformed and became such a dominant team once again um, as they've dominated Germany the last couple of years and just um, dominated Bundesliga play and just cruised to a Champions uh, League title. And you don't say that much. It's a tough competition. You don't say that often that a team cruised um, to a title to be called the best club in the continent. And they did so. You know, the, I believe they were the first team in Champions League history to win every single game that was available to them from the group stage to the knockout stages and the final, of course. So impressive for them there, and they've been continuing that this season, how they've been rolling and, um, you know, win an, uh, collect another trophy there. But the big 
note about that Club World Cup game um, for here uh, of those soccer fans here at home in the USA. Um, that game featured two MLS homegrown talents, um, Alfonso Davies on Bayern Munich and Carlos Salcedo um, on the Tigris side of things, two guys who you know, grew up in the MLS and moved elsewhere. Um, so impressive to see that MLS, who typically in the last 20 years has been has had the reputation of being a retirement league. You know, you'd have guys that you know had great careers over in Europe would come home, uh, would come to the U.S. Uh, and you know bring notoriety um, to soccer here. David Beckham was the biggest one. You know, most recently you had Wayne Rooney and Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a couple of others. Um, Mitzed in, in there as well, Bastian Schweinsteiger, all, all those guys who, um, Andrea Pirlo, Frank Lampard, to keep on running off the list of names, who have had great careers in Europe come over to the U.S. Um, basically to retire. Um, and MLS has done really well to change that sort of reputation in the last couple of years, has gotten a lot more younger. Um, you know, the academies have gotten better, and you see talents like uh, Alfonso Davies and Carlos Salcedo um, blossoming and being able to go abroad and succeed in places. You see this with a lot of U.S. men's national team towns, but the difference there is they're not MLS homegrown. They've typically, you know, made their stake in Europe, you know, train, uh, made it to those team uh, teams as academy like Christian Pulisic, um, spent, some, uh, pl spent plenty of time in the Borussia Dortmund academy and then made his way from there. So, Great to see MLS, you know, being able to make those sort of strides and develop players um, to have some great careers, whether it's just on MLS stage or more importantly, um, going over to uh, big clubs um, in Europe or abroad in general. Um, so great to see there. But over now to the Champions League as um, we start the knockout rounds um, this week. And, you know, just to go through... Um, some predictions. We mentioned a lot about Liverpool, so the first matchup here is RB Leipzig against um, Liverpool. Of course, this will uh, all matchups will be a two-legged affair. This is one of them. Uh, this is one of the matches that, due to coronavirus restri restrictions, have to um, be switched into different venues. Um, so this one will take place in Budapest, Hungary, in the um, Pushkas Arena. It had to be switched on late notice because of all the coronavirus restrictions in Germany from people from the UK coming in um, because of the variant that developed in the UK over the last couple of months. Um, but um, predicting this tie, it's a really this is going to be a really interesting matchup um, between Liverpool and Leipzig. Two, two like-minded coaches and Klopp and Nagelsmann who... You know, they're very about attacking football, pressing um, the ball. Um, you know, Liverpool a little more seasoned, of course, coming off of winning the Champions League two seasons ago. Um, Leipzig, more of an up-and-coming team. Um, you know, ones who are, uh, you know, sort of just coming up in the last couple of years in real contention, made the semifinals um, last season. Um, so, it's, it's going to be an interesting matchup. It's one that... You know, Liverpool could be given problems with uh, with Leipzig. They got some good players, but it'll be interesting to see how Liverpool plays 
after the comments that Klopp made on the weekend that they're basically conceding the Premier League title, acknowledging that they're not going to be able to successfully defend their championship from last year. And basically, that means you can, as a team, you can focus on this. Will that fire Liverpool up a little bit more? Or will they still be stuck in the lollygag that they've been in for the past month or so, where their offense just can't seem to get things going? The execution in the final third is lacking um, or whatnot. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they come out in this first leg, um, you know, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Um, on the Leipzig side of things, it was just announced on the weekend that Bayern Munich has agreed to sign star center back Diet Upamecano um, in the summer. So Upamecano, their star center back, their rock solid guy in that defense, is going to be moving uh, to Bundesliga rivals Bayern Munich um, at the end of the season. How you're going to react to that sort of news? You know, as a coach, you got to try and keep that out of players' mind and you know just stay focused on the task at hand. But interesting to see how. You know, team will react to that. Such a star player for them, they know is going to be on the way out. Um, next matchup we got um, Sevilla versus Dortmund. Another interesting matchup. Sevilla, I probably expect, will be a little bit more pragmatic. Might sit back against a free-flowing, attacking Borussia Dortmund. We've seen Jaden Sancho, the Jaden Sancho revival in the last couple of weeks. Sancho had a horrible first half of the season. I believe he only had three goals the entire first half of the season, but um, started has started to really catch fire um, in the past couple of weeks. Um, so, you know, Dortmund definitely riding a hot hand in Sancho, and of course, the ever-dominant present at the number nine position in Erling Haaland, um, you know, try and ride them to um, uh, a victory over Sevilla in the ne over the next two legs and getting to the next round so I think it's uh, my my actually my you know just to go back on to the last one my prediction I forgot to mention that my prediction I believe Liverpool will just edge Leipzig out I believe it will be on away goal so it's going to be one of those close matchups um, just that they're a little more seasoned I get they're in a funk right now but uh, I think what Klopp you you think in such big games high leverage games that they would figure it out albeit in a tight result um, but Sevilla and Dortmund, I predict um, a win uh, for Dortmund in this one over the course of the two legs. I think they'll be able to break down Sevilla and get past them. It'll be a, a tough, pragmatic matchup. Um, but I think Dortmund will come away with the win there. An interesting matchup in Atletico Madrid versus uh, Chelsea. Might have been a more interesting matchup a couple of months ago, um, given how good uh, form Chelsea were in and at the top of the table. Uh, Premier League table come Thanksgiving time. Um, but Atletico, I think Atletico Madrid will dominate in this one over the course of the two legs. Atletico Madrid is just, right now in the La Liga, is just absolutely cruising to a title right now. I have a couple of games in hand and are eight points up, I believe, um, uh, over Barcelona. So Atletico is just having an absolutely dominant season. You know, with Diego Simeone, they're always going to be strong defensively. But I've been able to get some really good attacking play this season out of Luis Suarez. Of course, a dumb, dumb move from Barcelona to let him go. Um, age is just a number sometimes. Um, but I think Atletico Madrid will dominate in this matchup and move on uh, to the quarterfinals. 
Um, then you got Atalanta versus Real Madrid. More like a David versus Goliath here. Atalanta were the darlings of last season's Champions League, writing a incredible offense for what Atalanta have been to um, a run to the quarterfinals last season. Um, so had an impressive run there. Um, trying to do the same against Real Madrid. Haven't had the same success in Serie A as they, they did previously, but... Um, as they did last season, um, but still hovering around just outside of the European places as of right now in uh, in their domestic season. But either way, I think Real Madrid will win this one um, fairly comfortably, not too dominant, but I think fairly comfortably uh, will win this one over the, next, uh, over the course of two legs. A really interesting one in Barcelona versus PSG and, you know, a rematch from their uh, round of 16 tie from 2017 where... PSG took a 4-0 home lead, um, took a 4-0 aggregate lead to Camp Nou, and um, Barcelona won that game 6-1 to one, uh, to win on aggregate 6-5, to five, and probably one of the greatest Champions League, two-legged Champions League matchups you're ever going to see. So I don't, I don't, I don't expect we'll get those kind of fireworks um, this time around, but will be an interesting matchup. Neymar, of course, for PSG will be out in this game once again with an injury um, but um, you know this game could go either way with PSG you know they're sort of okay in the season you know got Neymar injured um, Bayern, uh, Barcelona has been doing well in the last couple of weeks but have generally been eh, up and down this season in La Liga um, but I believe I, I'm gonna pick Barcelona to win this I think um, you know they They've picked it up in the last couple of weeks, of course. Um, you know, led by Lionel Messi, I think he'll be able to deliver them a win here. Um, Porto versus Juventus, Cristiano Ronaldo. This is going to be a dominant win for Juventus, despite their domestic struggles. Lazio versus Bayern. It's going to be Bayern all the way. It's going to be a cruise here. Bayern are the team to beat in the Champions League, and just are literally the dominant, but uh, literally the most dominant team in Europe right now and in Europe in the past year and a half. Um, then you have Borussia Mönchengladbach against Manchester City. Talked about Manchester City earlier on. Um, they're just hitting hitting their stride right now in this point of the season. They'll get a dominant win over Mönchengladbach. So those are my Champions League predictions uh, for this week as the rounds of 16 will get underway. And with that, we, we wrap up another edition of the Mike Sports Roundup. As always, we'll be back here um, next week from Monday on Monday from 3 to 4 p.m. So um, with that, wrapping up another edition, I'm Michael Zabo. Have a good day, everybody, and we'll see you back here right once again next week.